Good morning. This is going to go and make some strange sounds as I keep talking, I kind of feel. For 10 long years, he's called it Going Forward Fund. I reckon he's going to take at least another 10 before he finally says Go Forward Fund. Listen, thank you so much for praying for me while I was at the Paramount Retreat last week. It was an awesome time. And their church is just going so well. The Lord is doing some wonderful stuff with them. And so to get a whole weekend gathering, I was so tired. By the time we were done, I preached three and a half sessions for them. On Sunday afternoon, I just sort of slept all afternoon and then got up for dinner and then went back to bed. But thank you for praying for me. And it was just a wonderful time where I think the Lord really met us in powerful and wonderful ways. But it is good to be back. It is good to be around God's word with you again this morning. And so let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 12. And since the start of Luke chapter 12 beginning, Jesus has been addressing both the disciples and the crowds. He's been talking to them first and foremostly about hypocrisy and the fear of man, the danger of becoming like the Pharisees and allowing a little yeast to ruin them, effectively the fear of men to ruin them. He's urging them, don't start putting on masks, pretending to be somebody you're not, be real. Do you, and in the right way, fear God more than men and be my ambassadors. He then turns his attention to the parable of the rich fool. And then just last week, as Brendan so preached so well, starts talking to us about fearless generosity. How all that we've given, given by the Lord, all that he's blessed us with, is primarily for us to bless others. And we can do that with faith, knowing that he will care for all our needs. And to conclude that text, and in some ways start a new conversation... Jesus then says the following, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48, which is our text this morning. This is where Jesus now goes with his disciples and with the crowds. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watcher and the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming... He would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. 
And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. It's a nice light text for us this morning. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that when you are addressing the crowd in this moment, that includes us. Lord, did you give us ears to hear you this morning? Understanding that you are talking to us about something that is of vital importance. Oh Lord, would we not only hear your word this morning, would we heed your word? Would we sit under your teaching? Would the text be lifted high above our lives this morning as we're aware we are being addressed by the one who is supreme in creation, the one who is supreme in the church, the one who is supreme in our lives? Lord, help us to listen to you and heed you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it was 11 years ago now that my friend Pete Greasley, who was the pastor of the church I used to be a part of, where I was the executive pastor, called me up and said, Dave, I've got some bad news for you. Your friend Dan, Dan Gavetta, who is one of my fellow pastors, has been taken really ill. And when I inquired, what do you mean about he's been taken ill? He said, well, he was at CrossFit. He had said goodbye to Kat and their four kids. He was at CrossFit and something's happened. And we're not quite sure what yet, but he collapsed. He felt ill. He passed out. He's gone into a coma. And it quickly became apparent that my friend Dan had actually suffered a bleed on his brain. An aneurysm that he never knew existed had actually exploded. And one week later, my friend Dan was dead. He was on life support for a week and then they turned it off, aware that he's not coming back. He was 33 years old and left a wife with four children under seven. Just this week, my friend Andrew Lang and I went to sit with a couple that were eager to get married. They were friends of Andrew, particularly the young man. And yet, as soon as I started the conversation, it was apparent this is going to be a difficult conversation because not only are they eager to get married, but they are eager to get married in the next month. That takes a court order to actually allow that permission. And yet, the reason why they were so eager to get married in the next month is because they're not sure if he will be alive next month. He's been told by the doctors that he's riddled with cancer. And although the situation is not completely hopeless, it does look extremely bleak. And you're just put face to face in that moment with the reality that this young man, it would appear outside of a miracle at 25, is going to die. You then come home and you turn on the news and we are bombarded by news of pandemics, news of wars, news of floods. Just yesterday, we are bombarded with news of how infamous cricketers, even they, seem to die. Shane Warne, 52 years old. Gone. 
Massive heart attack. His friends turn up, they try and revive him, they give him CPR, but he, they could not be revived. At 52 years old, Australia is shocked, but this man has died. And when you put all these things together, what you realize is that life is far more fragile and finite than we care to think, is it not? We think we've got all the time in the world. We think we're like this rich man in verses 16 to 20 who can just relax and eat and drink and be merry because surely there'll be tomorrow. Not realizing that maybe there won't be a tomorrow. And the question that I think this text then placards above all our eyes and asks to each and every person in the crowd is simply this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you ready to meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Are you ready to stand before him as Lord and Majesty and Ruler of all and give an account of your life? See, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says that's what's going to happen. It says that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And you never know when that moment's coming. Are you ready for that moment? Are you prepared for that moment? In particular, are you ready for Jesus' return? Because Sovereign Grace, I want to encourage you, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to judge the living and the dead. And none of us know when that moment's going to be. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because Jesus is coming back. Arlon T. Olson, the former president of the Evangelical Free Church of America, says it this way. He says, ever since the first days of the Christian church, evangelicals have been looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, verse 13. They may have disagreed as to its timing and to the events of the eschatological calendar. They may have differed as to a pre-tribulation or post-tribulation rapture. Indeed, the pre or post or non-millennial coming. However, all are agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the King of Kings, who will someday return and make all things right. Kent Hughes, likewise, in his commentary, comments as follows. He says, this agreement regarding the sure return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead comes from the overwhelming evidence of Scripture. There are 260 chapters of Scripture in the New Testament, and Christ's return is mentioned no less than 318 times. Statistically, therefore, one verse in 25 mentions the Lord's return and the reality that Jesus is coming back. My friends, do you live with that expectation that Jesus is coming back? And moreover, are you ready for that moment? That moment that could come at any moment in your life. Are you ready to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and give an account of your life? Are you ready? I have two points that I want us to examine this morning from this text. Number one, our call to be ready. Verses 35 to 40. And then number two, the realities of our readiness. This is 41 to 48. And yet I come to this text really with just one hope. 
And it is the hope that this morning we would stand before Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and honestly look ourselves in the eye and ask ourselves this question. Are you ready? If he's coming today, are you ready? Point one, our call to be ready. Look with me at verses 35 to 36 as we examine this call together. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was examining this text this morning, not just this morning, for the last few days, is how easy it is to forget that as Christians, or more specifically as servants of the master, which we're referred to right here in this text, it's so easy to forget that we are indeed in the race of our lives. It's so easy to forget that, isn't it? And I think particularly during COVID and coming out of COVID, we all carry some COVID kilos, and it's so easy to forget that I'm in the race of my life. In Hebrews 12, verse 1 then, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He exhorts us to the greatest race of all, a race that if you're a Christian, you are in. And this imagery, this metaphorical picture that is used regularly in the Bible of races in 1 Corinthians 9 and Philippians 3. It's in 2 Timothy 4 and Galatians 5 and obviously here in Hebrews 12. Again and again, we are told as Christians, you are in the race of your life. The cloud of witnesses are looking on, they're straining on. They're straining on to look at the Colosseum of life and they're applauding you, my friends. They're encouraging you. Keep going. And we are indeed in an incredible race. It's a race where you and I are the hands and feet of Jesus. Called to love people and care for people. To encourage people and serve people. We've all been given gifts and abilities. Parts to play in this great adventurous race. Parts to play as we make a difference for the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those main parts is we're called to proclaim the glories of Jesus in our communities and with our friends and families. To tell everybody we've ever met about Christ and Him crucified so they can join us in this great race. This is an incredible race to be in. And yet, it is so easy to forget about it and get distracted away from it, is it not? We forget. You see, as I've said before from this pulpit, a greatest challenge, I think, for us here in Sydney, Australia, really isn't persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. If I was preaching in Nepal or Pakistan or Syria, I wouldn't be saying that. I would be calling them to stand strong against the persecution from the world. There are brothers and sisters around the world losing their lives for the sake of Christ just by proclaiming his name. Our brother, our pastor in Nepal at the moment, is busy trying to get a fellow pastor out of jail. It's a landmark case in Nepal and it's our guy that is involved in trying to get him out, being his advocate. If it doesn't go well, he's already told me he will definitely end up in jail with him. That's the world they're living in. That is not our world. 
Our greatest challenge here in Sydney is not primarily persecution from the world. No, it is seduction by the world. It's getting seduced by it. Hey, don't worry about the race. Come over here. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. It is so easy, I think, for us here in Sydney to get seduced by the world. It's so easy to get seduced then into thinking that this world is home, is it not? So easy to think that this dot in time that we've been given by the Lord is all we've got. That this life of 80, 90, maybe 100 years is all we have got. And so I'm going to relax. I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. I'm going to try and get as many letters after my name as I can. I'm going to try and get the best job I can, the best house I can. I'm going to see the world as much as I can because this is all I've got. Right? No. But the world claims that again and again and again. And it exhorts us to covetousness all the time. The amount of adverts that say, because you're worth it. And we sit there going, yes, I am. Yes. I'm so worth this. I need that shampoo. You know, the world is constantly luring us into covetousness. Lying to us that true satisfaction can be found. If you only just get this, then you'll be truly satisfied. But as I said a few weeks ago, it's a wild goose chase without the goose. You get the thing, you get the item, what happens? You love it for like a week. And then you want something else. And then something else. And something else. That's the horror with covetousness. It is. It promises so much and delivers on nothing. We are constantly being seduced into thinking, if I can only get this, then I'll be happy. And we're constantly seduced then into thinking that this life I have is all I have, and this world is therefore home. But the Bible tells us again and again, as Christians, listen, this is not your home. This is not it. For example, in Hebrews 11, verse 13, we read how we are pilgrims. Strangers and aliens on this earth. In Hebrews 11 verse 16, we're exhorted then, understanding that we're citizens of a better country, namely a heavenly one. That that is their home. And in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, Paul therefore exhorts us to be ambassadors and represent our true country. My true country is not the United Kingdom or Australia. My true country is heaven, as is yours. And we are called then by the Lord to be his ambassadors here on this earth as tenants, as lodgers. Understanding that heaven is my home. I've been made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus and that place is heaven. And yet the world constantly seduces us into thinking, no, it's not about that. It's about now. Live your best life now because it's all you've got. Likewise, the world seduces us into thinking That we're functionally immortal, doesn't it? It's a strange concept. But I think it does it to us all the time. No individual I've ever met actually thinks they are immortal in the sense that I'm going to live on this earth for like a thousand years. No one thinks that. But nearly everybody assumes that I am surely got tomorrow and the week after and next year. It's functional immortality. It's thinking, I can just put it off to tomorrow because it will surely exist. Failing to realize that maybe it won't. Maybe today's your last day. This is what James tells us in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, 
we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The world constantly tells us, of course you've got tomorrow. Come on, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Just work it all out. This is your best life now. And James says, but maybe you haven't got a tomorrow. You know, the Bible exhorts us again and again and that we are in a race of our lives. And it exhorts us again and again into helping us understand you never know when it's going to finish. Because you never know when Jesus is coming back. And so Jesus looks us in the eye right here in this text. And he tells us in verse 35 that we need to be ready for his return like good and faithful servants. Look again at verse 35. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home for the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Listen, the master in this story, of course, is Jesus. Jesus has left his servants behind. He has gone to a great wedding. Now, Hebrews wedding, um, they can last like a long time. They're not like a day thing. They can last days and days and days. So the point is the servants have no idea when the master is coming back, but they do know he's coming back. And so the servants, these Christians, they are doing what? They are alert and busy at home. They are alert and busy with the roles that the master has given them. They are dressed in and ready for action, it says there. The Jewish tunic um, would, you know, it could look quite nice. But the challenge with it was, if you didn't have it on right, or you didn't have your belt attached right, if you were suddenly called to run, you wouldn't run. You'd be falling over yourself because it was so long. So to say dressed meant that you'd have the tunic on, but your belt around your waist, and you'd tuck the tunic into your belt, so that as soon as your master calls you, you can go, you can go run. He needs me. He's coming home. He's called me to task, so I've got to get busy. I'm in the race of my lives. He's saying here, listen, these wise servants are dressed and ready for action, and their lamps are always burning. They never switched off then spiritually from their master. They're never off busy slumbering and sleeping, chasing after some wild goose. No, their lamps are always on because they understand we are in the race of our lives. And as soon as the master comes back, I'm going to be waiting for him at the door because I long to see him again. Because this isn't my home. This is the master's home and my home is with him. Jesus exhorts the crowd in this moment to be alert and active as faithful servants. Servants that are dressed and ready for action and that keep their lamps burning. These faithful students are alert and active. My friends, if we're paying attention, his point is he wants all his servants to be like that. All his disciples. All Christians. Are you ready? Because he's coming back. And he wants to find us alert and active. And in verse 37 and 38, we then see the master's response to returning to these types of servants. Servants that are alert and active, that are being faithful to the call that the master has given them. This is what it says, verse 37, 38. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. You know, this whole premise of the second watch or the third watch, in Jewish tradition there was a first, second and third watch of the night. It just divided up the night that way. And he's saying, listen, you never know when he's going to come back. But when he comes back, if he finds these servants being faithful, what he's called them to. The light is on in their house. He looks in through the window and sees them busy preparing for his return. Busy in the roles that he's called them to. Oh my, it is clear that his response will be to bless them. Indeed, this master Jesus in this story is so moved by the faithfulness that he sees in these servants. That instead of sitting down at the table and just sitting and enjoying them serving him, it says that he dressed himself to wait on them. It's exactly the same word in the Greek of what it uses when the servants are to dress for action. Now we see the master, Jesus Christ himself, dressing himself. Why? So he can serve these servants. It's amazing. The one who in just a few chapters on is going to strap a towel around his waist and wash the disciples' feet. The one who in just a few chapters after that is going to die on a cross and give his life away as a ransom for many. On that day when he returns is going to set up an almighty table. Because what we see coming into view here is the great marriage supper of the Lamb of Revelation 19. A moment when people from every tribe and language and nation gather in the heavenly realms. And what is ecstatically incredible and mind-blowing here is he says, On that day, you're going to be singing to me, but I'm going to be serving you. I'm going to be serving you. All those who have been good and faithful servants, I'm going to be dressing for action. Because I want to bless you. Is that not amazing? How humbling. All I want to do is sing to him. But it appears all he wants to do is serve us. What we see right here then is that there is great blessing that comes to alert and active faithful students. Faithful servants who by God's grace are ready. Ready for his return. And he quickly, having put that great blessing out to us and what it means to be an alert and active, faithful servant, he puts that out to us and then very quickly wants to help us see again. But are you ready for that? Are you ready? And this is what he says in verses 39 and 40. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. His analogy is now changed, and here's his point. His point is, when I come, I'm coming like a thief in the night. You see, maybe you're here today, church, and you think, well, I'm pretty sure he's not going to come today. Well, that would make it unexpected, which would make it likely. He's going to come when you're unexpecting him. When you're thinking, there's no way now. He's telling us that he will come like a thief in the night. This is a theme that we see regularly in Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2 and 3, Paul says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, 
Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Jupiter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. In Revelation 16 verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Listen, Jesus' point is the master is coming back. I am coming back and my turn will be swift and unexpected like a thief in the night. You never know when it's going to happen. It's a sovereign grace. Are you ready? Are you ready? You never know when your time might be up. You never know when he might return. Are you ready to go stand before him? If it was now. As king of kings and lord of lords and give an account for your life. You know, I think for many of us, the answer, if we're honest, is probably going to be, well, 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 no. I'm not sure I am ready. And our answers of why we might not be ready could be, could be many. For some, you may be like, you know what, I, I think this is me. I think I've got distracted. I've forgotten that I'm in the race of my life. I've forgotten that I'm called to run with endurance. I've completely forgotten that he's coming back at all. I thought I had all the time in the world. And so maybe as you hear that and you're convicted of that, you're like, oh my, there's so much more I've got to do. There's so many people I need to tell about Jesus that he's put in my life. I'm assuming that I've got tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, but maybe I haven't. Maybe for others you're aware, you know, I've got gifts and abilities that the Lord has given me to steward for his glory. And yet in reality, I'm not using them at all. I'm just using them to make money so that I can relax and eat and drink and be merry. I'm not thinking about using them in the church to build something that will last forever. I'm just using them for me. I'm not ready. Don't come back yet. Or maybe conversations with the kids that you're aware. Listen, I've, I've specialized in the minor. I've taught them to play netball well and soccer well, but I haven't taught them about the greatness of God and grace. What am I doing? I'm assuming I've got decades with these kids, but maybe I've got a day. Maybe you're aware this morning. Listen, if I'm honest, I'm not ready. I'm not running hard right now. If he was coming to the door right now, it would be like, oh my goodness, I've got to do something because I'm not ready. Well, listen, praise God. That if you're hearing this message and still breathing, you're not dead. He's given you the gift of time. There is time to pay attention to this. What a gift, don't you think? What a gift to be pre-warned that he is coming. But my friends, at the same time as embracing that gift and enjoying that gift, we must also understand there is urgency here in what we're called to. There's urgency. And that's exactly what Jesus then talks about in verse 41 through to the end of 48, which is my second and final point today, the realities of our readiness. See, this teaching was no doubt electric. The disciples' minds were likely blown at this moment by the implications of all what he said. I mean, this is heavy stuff. And so Peter, which always seems to be game for a laugh, asks the question, That all the disciples are thinking in this moment, verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us 
offer all. You know, what he's trying to do is, listen, hey, listen, this, Jesus this is pretty intense, so here's my thinking. It's probably not for us, it's for them, right? <laughs> Just to confirm. <laughs> I love Peter. I can't wait to meet him on that day. I'll say, you minimally made me laugh in the Bible. Thank you so much. I can relate to you on many occasions, and I would love to hang out with you for all eternity, because you're my type of guy. <clears throat> Peter is saying what they're all thinking. Listen, I'm kind of thinking this is probably not for me, right? Well, Jesus, in the original ghosting, ghosts him right here. He doesn't even answer his question. He doesn't answer his question because I think the answer by implication is, listen, this is to all who have ears to hear. This is true of everyone. And then he begins to unpack with the crowd the realities of our readiness, the consequences, if you will. The realities of whether we truly are ready for his return or not when we stand before him and give an account before our lives. First up, then, we have one of two options. First up is the faithful servant. The servant that is alert and active and ready for the Savior's return, ready for the master to come back. And it would appear that that individual receives gracious reward. It's wonderful. Look with me at verse 42 through to 44. It says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food and the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Right here then we see option one. The master being Jesus, returning and seeing his servants serving faithfully. And his point is, listen, as reward of your temporary and earthly responsibilities, having done that incredibly well, I will now give you vast permanent opportunities in the heavenly realms to come. This is a principle we see elsewhere in the Bible as well. So Luke chapter 19, verses 15 through 17, for example, says, when he returned... Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your meaner has made ten meaners more. And he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. There is a principle in the Bible that where a servant of Christ has been faithful with their temporary earthly responsibilities, at Christ's return, he will then give them vast permanent opportunities. Exactly what does that mean? I have no idea. But what is clear, it's really good. It's something you are going to want. That's why it's held out here as such a good thing. He's Listen, be alert, be faithful. Why? Because on that day, I will reward you. Nothing will be wasted here in this earth. I'm paying attention for every detail. Why? So I can reward you on that day. So I can say, well done, good and faithful servant. My friends, I don't know what you're running for in this race, but what could be better than hearing that from the Savior? It says in the Bible that some people will get to heaven by the skin of their teeth. Yes, they're in, but just. What a tragedy. Rather than getting in and him going, "Uh uh-huh, I've been waiting for you. Well done, son. 
Well done. Good and faithful servant. How tragic it would be to live for the praise of men for this 70, 80, 90 years, but never receive well done, good and faithful servant for millennia. What are you running for? What are you living for? He's urging us here to be good and faithful servants. Why? Because for those servants that are alert and ready and busy serving him upon his return, there is gracious and eternal reward. It's a beautiful thing for millennia. Are you preparing for your retirement? Are you preparing for your millennia? We have to make our choice. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then in verses 45 through to the end, he addresses the other option. Not a faithful servant, but a foolish servant. And this foolish servant doesn't receive gracious reward. No, they receive righteous and just punishment. See, we serve a God who is merciful and gracious and loving, no doubt. But we also serve a God who is holy and righteous and just. And where his servants have been in disobedience to him, enjoying the house for everything they can gain, but never acknowledging him, never living for him, never putting their faith in him. I'm not interested in my master. I just want your stuff. That's disobedient. And he's holy and just. And he will punish that. He must. Otherwise it would besmirch his own glory and besmirch his own integrity. And so right up front then we see what will happen to the outright disobedient. Verse 45 and 46. It says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. And begins to beat the male and female servants. And to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Kent Hughes says the following about this servant. He says, the servant here has not simply been lazy or inactive, but monstrously unfaithful. A drunken glutton who not only beats men, but women. An abuser of both divine trust and human life. His life is a grotesque perversion. But when the master Jesus returns, this cruel servant will suffer a grisly end. And so they will. This is someone who has been outright disobedient to the master. And the grisly end that comes into view here, although metaphorically, is hell. And hell is something that I think, like death, we try and brush to a side and ignore. But now and again, I think we just have to stare at it and realize the reality of it. R.C. Sproul says the following about hell. He says, we have often heard statements such as war is hell or I went through hell. These expressions are, of course, not taken literally. Rather, they reflect our tendency to use the word hell as a descriptive term for the most ghastly human experience possible. Yet no human experience in this world is actually comparable to hell. If we try to imagine the worst of all possible suffering in the here and now, we have still not yet stretched our imaginations to reach the dreadful reality of hell. For there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. My friends, that's right. 
Biblically defined, hell is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no end. And his point is if I come back and discover a foolish servant, hell will be their eternal home. A punishment from which there will be no escape, no relief, and no end. That's what's going to happen to the outright disobedient. But what about the quietly disobedient? What about those who we would regularly think of in this world as nonetheless nice people? They're not God followers or God fearers. They never put their faith in Jesus, but they're quite nice, right? Actually, no. They live in hostility to God by not acknowledging him, not serving him. They're addressed in verse 47 and 48. It says, and that serpent, servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready to act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they, ent- they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Listen, I'd want you to know, as you read those verses, we are swimming in the deep end of the theological pool in these verses. Exactly what does it mean? Does it mean, then, that there's different levels of punishment on that final day? Like there is different levels of reward in heaven, are there different levels of punishment in hell? I'm not sure. People smarter than I, the commentators, are clearly not sure. But what everybody I've ever met is sure on is all this punishment, even if it's in different degrees, all takes place in the confines of hell. A punishment from which there will be no escape, no escape, no relief, and no end before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God. And my friends, this text is here because the Savior is engaging with the crowd this morning and just saying to them, listen, this is the reality of your sin, but I don't want you to go there. That's why I've came. As you just finally to close, how should we respond to this text? How should we respond to understanding about the faithful servant and the foolish servant? How should we respond? Well, firstly, quickly, if you're a believer... The way you should respond, I believe, is by getting yourself ready for the master's return. How? Well, by being an alert and active and faithful servant. Friends, you never know when your time's going to be up. You can't add another minute to your life if it's his will that you die. You never know when he might return and call you home. You never know when the skies might be rendered And you stand before him and give an account for your life. Jim Elliot once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's not talking just about possessions, although it includes that. He's talking about the entirety of your life, your gifts, your abilities, your energies. He is no fool who gives what he cannot lose. That's why he became a missionary, because he's aware, I'm good to die for the sake of Christ. Because even if I do that, I will gain an eternal reward in the heavenly realms, which I will never be able to lose. So I'm living for that day, not this day. He was like Martin Luther, who had just two days on his calendar, this day and that day. 
My friends, if you are a Christian, I want to exhort you to do all you can to get yourself ready for his return by being an alert and active and faithful servant. There is no doubt for that to be possible. We all need the Lord, don't we? We can't just do this by ourselves. Jesus himself tells us in John 15 verse 5, for apart from me, you can do nothing. We would be making a grave mistake to just go, oh my gosh, I've got to get my life sorted out. I've got to run. No, you've got to sit at his feet and then run. Because it will only be possible through the energy that he gives you. That's what Mary and Martha was all about. The response to this shouldn't just be service, service, service. It should be sitting and service, sitting and service, sitting and service. We need the Lord to help us as Christians. And truth is, my friends, we need, we need each other, don't we? In Hebrews 10 verse 24, we're exhorted to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Spur one another on. Cheer one another on. Get along to your gospel community and spur one another on. Why? Well, because the world will be spurring you on to something quite different. And so, yes, you need Jesus, but you need others around you to be Jesus to you. To say, hey, don't get distracted with that. Don't get pulled in by that. I wonder if you're getting seduced by the world there, my friend. Why? Well, because we get one race. And you never know when it's going to finish. And Jesus is coming back. See, a big part of my job and Brendan's job and the pastoral team is to prepare you for that day. And headline, that's what I do for a living. You may not like everything I say. You may not even like me, I don't know. But it's my job, in light of eternity, to prepare you for that day. And it is my regular prayer that on that day, you will hear from Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. And if you would pay attention on that day, there will be this guy with a strange English, Aussie, American accent at the back. Me. I'll be the one cheering the loudest, going, yes. Because that's what we do. We seek to prepare you for that last day. Get ready. And my friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to exhort you to get ready today by putting your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And listen, my friends, this is serious. Because as biblically defined right now, you are not ready. The last thing you want is Jesus to return. Because you are not ready. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we have. Me too. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've been entrusted by so much by the master, by the creator of it all. And yet we haven't acknowledged him. We haven't lived for him. We've just lived for ourselves. We've done our thing. That's what sin is. And by nature then the Bible tells us we're objects of his wrath. And he could have left us there. But he didn't. For God so loved the world, Jesus tells us, that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
God could have left us as objects of his wrath, but he didn't. When the fullness of time had come, he sends forth his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. His name was Jesus, the man who is addressing the crowd in this moment. He goes on to give his life away as a ransom for many. He's then resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father before he comes back. And his main message was simply this. Put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior and you will have life. And that in abundance. My friends, without faith in him, you're not ready for his return. But today, if you put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, he could go ahead and return. And you would receive the words, welcome home from him, not away from me. I never knew you. My friends, I want you to receive welcome home. And so before even the service finishes today, put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Just quietly, before the Lord, maybe even as we sing, just in your mind, say, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? I put my faith in you as my Lord and Savior. And come and let us know. We'd love to pray with you in that as well. We'd love to stand with you. There's nothing more important to us than preparing you for that day. So do that today. Life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think. So folks, for each and every one of us, each and every person in the crowd, this is not just a communal thing. This is an individual thing. Get ready. Get ready. And by the grace of God and for his glory then, on that last day, would you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, your teaching is sobering and electrifying and inspiring. Lord, I thank you for addressing the crowd on that day 2,000 years ago. And Lord, I thank you for addressing us this day. Lord, our hearts can so easily get distracted away from you. I know it myself. The fog of this world can so easily descend and we get pulled into 101 other things and forget, I'm in a race. And Jesus is coming back. The master will return and he needs to find me active and busy and ready. Oh Lord, would that be the story of every member of Sovereign Grace Church? And Lord, for anybody here today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, well, I pray that today would be a great day for them. Because I pray today would be the day that they go from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from deafness to hearing. Lord, as they put their faith in you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, did you quicken the heart of anybody in the room today to make that step who's never made it? Lord, would they prepare for that day with this first step? Lord, I thank you that you will no doubt forgive them of their sins and redeem them to a relationship and assure them that heaven is home. Because that's what you've done for all of us. It's what you love to do. In Jesus' name.